Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today on the pod, Max Hellerstein, the founder of Extra, a very cool new fintech startup. Before Extra, Max founded some other awesome businesses, Push for Pizza, which was acquired by Ease, and Down to Shop. We'll hear all about them in this convo. Max has had a pretty cool journey thus far that has learnings and advice that I think will be applicable to many of you. So that's all I'm going to say. Let's get into it. Okay, Max, thanks so much for coming on here. Glad, uh, glad to be speaking with you today. Yeah, Alex, thank you so much for having me. Uh, we're in opposite parts of Los Angeles and you know the COVID has kept us in our homes. We plan to do this together and we, we rescheduled it several times, but fuck it. We're just, uh, we're doing it over video. Yeah, dude, we, uh, we, we tried, we had a, it was good effort in there. Um, but unfortunately the world will not allow us to see each other. Two ships in the night of us being able to be in the physical, in the same physical place. Yeah. Not at the moment, but uh, I'm sure this will, as we were just talking about, this will be the conduit for, uh, for all sorts of stuff and us to be, you know, best friends going forward. But let, let, let's get into, uh, into your story. No pressure. Sto- <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> yeah, no pressure. Exactly. So uh, your story uh, is an entrepreneurial story. You're an entrepreneurial guy. I'd love to hear about where you think that should begin. You know, are your parents entrepreneurs? Did you come out of your mom's you know, womb like with a briefcase in your in your hand, like just ready, <laughs> ready to start businesses or like where where did that come from? Yeah. So I just wanted to, you know, I think for us, it, what I wanted to do is I wanted to make money with my, with my best friend and business partner, Cyrus at the time. Um, we were 14 years old and we, our parents wouldn't buy us the sneakers we wanted. Uh, and so we had this idea where we would basically start making these like little leather accessories that were called dead hearts. And there were these little brooch pins we'd make and we'd sell them, we'd sell them to our friends. And then, you know, as we're kind of going along for a few months, selling to our friends and our friends, friends wanted them. And then all of a sudden we were actually running like a full scale manufacturing operation out of uh, Cyrus's mom's basement. Um, and what's cool is Cyrus and I have been entrepreneurs and worked together for the past 10 years. And we built a bunch of different businesses together, all different kinds. Um, but it really started with him and him and I's desire to just kind of like do more with our time, make a little bit of money to buy those sneakers and like realize that there was this massive potential in like running a business at an early, at a young age. That's so cool. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, amazing to like have had a friend and co-founder and business partner like that. I mean, that's, that's, and that's a roommate. pretty we live oh, together. Really? We work together. It's a pretty wild, like if, yeah, we've, we've really done it all. <laughs> we live together. We work together. We're just not dating. <laughs> That's the only thing we haven't done. <laughs> and has it just been 10 years of, of bliss for you two? Or are there like, you know, there's ups and downs. You guys are too close at some points. Like, I mean, it, it, there, there has to be up, uh, ups and downs of it, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think working with your, with your best friend is definitely a really hard thing to do. You know, you, you basically, um, you, you're basically saying that like you, you guys can trust each other so much as friends and as work, like as colleagues that 
you kind of like lose that, you know, you kind of lose this feeling like, well, who do I go to when something's wrong? Because the person is probably wrong with this, the person I'm working with. And, and it's this really hard ability to like kind of isolate the friendship and the working relationship. And Cyrus and I have both, I think, like kind of given ourselves a masterclass in that. And absolutely, there have been like incredibly hard times. Um, there have also been like incredibly rewarding times. And, and I think that what you find is that in those relationships, you, you, you kind of there for the ups and the downs, like any real relationship. And a working relationship is actually a lot like a real relationship. The difference is when you come home after a long day of work, you're coming home with the person that you're working with and you're going into your home and you're retreating to this place that you're hoping to be isolated in. But in fact, that other person is right there. And so, you know, it's, it's hard and it's not for everybody for sure. And, you know, typically you're told not to work with your friends. Um, I probably give that advice more than the opposite because we're such a rare situation. But, you know, I also know when I look over to Cyrus, this is somebody who I'm building a legacy with and, and, and you know, hope to continue to build stuff with. So it's, it's, um, I have, I, I, we have been very fortunate and lucky to, to have the outcome we've had so far. Yeah. So, okay. So Max, let, let's continue the story. So after you're making uh, these shoe accessories and his yeah. mom's, in his mom's basement, um, yeah. I mean, you know, probably didn't like foresee yourself starting multiple businesses together, right? It's just like, oh, this is something interesting to do at the time. And now like, what's the next interesting thing that you and I are going to do to pass the time and make some bucks? Yeah. Yeah. So at the time we like, uh, not to kind of get too geeky on it, but we were like, we were using big cartel which was like the, the way you'd sell online products. And it was like for kind of for indie, like artists and like craftsmen. And it's like, it was kind of more of the like Etsy style approach to e-com. And then we got an email one day that was like, oh, there's this thing called Shopify. I'm like what's this, this new thing called Shopify. That's like this way to host, you know, be like online. This is before Squarespace and everything. And we're like, huh, like, I guess we could do like multiple web stores. We could like sell different kinds of products with different brands. And one of the channels that was working really well for us at the time was, was Tumblr. And Tumblr was just really getting hot because people were making Tumblr pages all really thematic and you could pin posts and there were now influencers on Tumblr and there was really no marketplace to like, like the way there is today, there, there's not, there wasn't like a, in, there wasn't like an agency for Tumblr influencers. You literally would like cold email these, these people and say, Hey, we want to work with you and we want you to promote our product. And we had this idea, well, if we could make one web shop, what would stop us from making more? And what would stop us from making different offerings and selling other products? Because we could make pins, we could do t-shirts, we could do socks. We started to unlock all these opportunities into products. And so what we decided to do was actually create brands for, for, for popular people on Tumblr. And so we would reach out to the people who were promoting Deadheart, which is our original brand. And then we, 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 we'd actually tell them, hey, we want to build a brand with you too. And we'd work out a revenue share. And so we were actually then became what was called 367 Productions. And under 367 Productions, we would build brands for different Tumblr influencers. And at one point, we had about like seven brands. And, and we'd do those direct-to-consumer. And we'd also go omni-channel and sell to, to retailers like Karmaloop.com and a bunch of like boutiques all over the world. And so at our peak, we were doing roughly, you know, three, four, three, $400,000 a year, seniors in high school. And um, we were working with over like 30 to 40 retailers. So wow. it, was pretty, it was pretty cool. Yeah, that that is super cool to make a business like that when you're uh, when you're still in high school. Um, wow, pretty pretty amazing. And and sorry, how did you and Cyrus meet? Like, what was the what was the or, so origin story? We actually met um, with, at uh, school at Brooklyn Collaborative Studies, which was a middle school in Brooklyn. Um, we uh, met in the lunchroom. I walked up to him in sixth grade, and I think I said to him something really good. I was like, "Do you like steak?" I don't really know why. <laughs> that but we just really bonded over that one first sentence and then like you know actually in middle school we weren't as close um it wasn't until we got to high school which we went to two different high schools in new york that um, we actually became good friends so we actually reunited and then became business partners because in middle school we kind of were like up and down you know, we didn't really know how our friendship would vibe back then right well okay so that's that's interesting you guys come together and then you you're on your second business now and you're still in high school and uh 
and you've grown it into mm-hmm. something pretty meaningful. And so what are you guys thinking? You're thinking like, this is going to be something great. We're going to just continue doing this. Like, what was your path? Or you guys went to college, you went separate off. Like how, what happened next? Yeah. It's so we're, so we're seniors in high school at the time. Life's pretty good, right? Like we've got this business is successful. Me and Cyrus have already decided we're going to move in together in our senior year of high school. So we're leaving, we're leaving high school. And, and, and in New York, most people kind of go to school locally. If you don't leave the state, people kind of stay at the commuter commuter level, whether it's an NYU or an SBA. And so Cyrus made the school decision to go to the school of visual arts. Um, and I made the decision to, uh, well, actually applied to a bunch of schools and didn't get into any of them. I actually didn't get into Baruch, which was the business school I wanted to get into. And that really the last choice I had for myself was taking some classes at NYU, like just like that were not even degree worthy or credit worthy, but just as extracurriculars, which would, you know, eventually kind of, if I wanted to go pursue a bachelor's, I could have done there. Um, or I would have had to, uh, or, 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 or go, I got into Brooklyn college. And so I went to Brooklyn college, um, I went to Brooklyn College uh, with a with for a study in finance and a minor in and um, and a minor in computer science um, or yeah I think that was what it was and I stayed for two weeks <laughs> I was there for like half a semester not even uh, and it was just it, it was it was really a hard experience for me because I was really really stressed out I, I kind of wanted to continue building the business and it was kind of doing well so it was like why am I in school if this business right. is doing well I made the hard decision to say hey I'm not going to stay in college Cyrus decided to stay at SVA for the year. And we had the opportunity um, while we were building out these, um, while we were building out these these apparel brands, while things were working, we're like, hey, what else do we want to do? What else excites us? And we kind of had this idea where like we weren't passionate about shipping fabric around the world. We really wanted to get interested in technology. We thought apps were really cool, and they were kind of bubbling up. This was like 2013, 2014. So apps were starting to become like it was cool to have an app at the time and to be known for building something that was like on the phone that was like. A, a button that you created basically and it's right. still kind of hard and prohibitive to just be, be an app maker at the time and so we had another I had another friend that i'd grown up with who basically came to me with this idea and was like hey i um i figured out this i, I want a hackathon with this idea for, for ordering pizza with the touch of a button um what if we built this into a real app and me and cyrus were like yeah well let's do that and he's like oh i need some resources i want to help with marketing it i want to figure out how to build this into a business and we said well like we'd love to help him do that and so me cyrus and william hawk which was my, my, my good friend who i uh, grew up with a neighbor um, decided to build what then became Push for Pizza. Um, and so we actually were able to sell all the brands um, to a group called Mineral, which basically was a kind of holding company which would take brands and sell them up the same way we did the Tumblr, to, to Tumblr users, but also to uh, Karma Loop and some of the other retailers we worked with. We were able to offload the inventory. Didn't change our lives. We made a little bit of money. And you know it was a good first like exit to be able to say in high school, hey, we, we sold that. And now we're yeah. doing something new. Took that money, invested into what then became Push for Pizza, shot a video that went massively viral. We kind of got known as the pizza boys. Um, and then this whole new chapter started where we actually were building a tech startup in the food delivery space, uh, particularly around sort of the one button ordering, you know, before Uber Eats, before Postmates, all that was really popularized. We were really kind of owning this whole like 60 seconds, like order a pizza and done experience. Yeah. So Max, I'd love to hear about more of the beginning. And then what was it like having this, you know, all of a sudden you and Cyrus had done all these things and now you've got a third person coming in. Was he friends with, with both of you? Uh, and then, you know, obviously like, how'd you think about, Oh, let's make a video or let's make an app, like how, the marketing of it. Like, I'd love to hear about, you know, some of the, the origin of it. Yeah. It's, it's a good question. So, so Will had been um, like a good friend and neighbor of mine growing up in New York and um, Cyrus had kind of met him in passing, but never like in a formal business sense. Me and Cyrus, I, I'm more of a biz dev guy. Cyrus has always been really marketing sort of like vision um, and, and brand. And, and we kind of never were technical. Uh, I, although I was supposed to minor in comp sci at, uh, at, at Brooklyn, at Brooklyn, um, at Brooklyn College, it was never like uh, something I was ever very good at or could have done at any real scale. 
So Will was sort of that, that missing piece. And he actually then brought in two of his friends who were engineers. And so we were actually a team of five. And oh, it was wow. difficult at first because there was definitely different working styles and different approaches. But actually in the very early days, we were so scrappy and so hungry to just like put this into the world that we actually, it really only got difficult to work together when we had raised money and we were operating at a point where there was like leadership was like really critical in the days where, um, where, where we had money to deploy. When we were actually in, this, in the basement still, it was quite easy to say, you build the app, you figure out how to market it, you, you raise some money and all that could kind of happen in tandem. So it's it interesting. Um, it was only in times of like actual organ, organized organization structure that things became harder. Right. So your job in the beginning there was to do some of the partnership and raising money stuff. Yeah. So I was responsible for sales. So p- p- partnering with pizzerias or finding an API partner to plug in with restaurants. And then I was also responsible for raising money. Um, but really that meant me and Cyrus both raising because you know, I think what I didn't realize back then that I realize now is, you know, I, I didn't realize our value of time back then. So I assumed that when raising money, you kind of needed to have everybody involved in some way to, to really let the investors know that like there was kind of everybody was focused on the fundraise. And then I actually realized later on that that's totally not the way you do it. But, but that's only after I've had the actual experience and time with it. So anyway, so I would literally take our whole team around to meetings with investors. And it was just so funny because it, we, they used to call them water bottle tours because we literally spent entire days just meeting with different VCs and had no idea what the hell we were doing from the pitch perspective. And actually, we got passed on by everybody with Pusher Pizza early on. Like nobody wanted to invest in Pusher Pizza because we were just like we were just saying really dumb shit in meetings. We we had no idea what metrics we were. Like we had no idea what KPIs meant. We were just like we want to sell a bunch of pizza. We need to build an Android version. Hopefully, it's going to work. Then we refined our pitch, learned what was working, met some mentors along the way. Um, ended up raising, you know, raising effectively an angel round of about six hundred thousand um, dollars after after about seven months of deploying um, the first version of the product. So you had the product out there; people could see it. You had some pizza partnerships. Some users were like pushing it and getting pizza, and then some mm-hmm. investors started to say, "Okay, like there's there's something interesting here, maybe." Yeah, and so we got incubated. So one of the people who early on did believe in us was a group called uh, Mother New York, which was a marketing agency in uh, New York, and they've been around for a while, really well known have worked with everybody from like Target, Microsoft, Stella Artois, Google, you name it. And they had this one division called Mother Ventures, which I believe is still around today. And they discovered us and they sort of, well, we actually got connected through some mutual friends and they was like, hey, like come in and pitch. Like no, no promises here, just come in and pitch. We came in and pitch and they said, listen, we don't want to write like a formal big check, but we'll incubate you guys, give you free office space, cover some of your expenses, and we'll help you raise a formal, what at the time was pre-seed round. This was like a pre-pre-seed round. Um, and, and our, actually our engineers like Will and the others had been in college and kind of needed a reason to drop out to work on this. And so that money was actually really more motivating for them to leave us to work on this full time, not have to worry about, you know, you know, really overhead because there was basics were covered. Um, and we had a little bit of budget to kind of, to, to, to experiment and mess around. And truly enough, we built enough good stuff in about, you know, five, six months there out of that capital, which was, I think it was like a hundred grand to then go on and, um, to do a formal seed or pre-seed, which was about 600 grand. Amazing, and then and then when did the when did the video come? So the video was was actually before all of this. That's the crazy oh, really? thing is is actually the video was 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 got us to the hundred k. The hundred k got us to the six hundred k. If you think about it that way, and and the reason for that was we released that video. And one thing I would change is we released that video with a product that was like not a hundred percent ready. Like when we released that product, we were a local product, so you could only really use our service where we had restaurants. So unfortunately, that meant wherever our API allowed, which by the way wasn't even every restaurant everywhere. So you know, at the time, maybe it was 3,000 pizzerias around America. And so we were very like held back from like, a, if I downloaded the app, I really wanted to use it. I just couldn't connect to a local pizzeria. That kind of sucked. Today, that would look a lot different because a lot of the infrastructure has changed and more restaurants have gone online and 
you know, to give you perspective, at the time we were sending orders to pizzerias by a fax machine because there was no tablets. There was wow. no, there were no tablets in pizza in restaurants that basically accepted orders. And if there were, they were expensive and few and far between. So what I would say is like, we were probably just too early to have that much buzz and hype, but because we were an app and because our story was good, we drove a shit ton of, of, of engagement to the, to the mobile app. And I think we got like 60, 60 to 80,000 installs in our first 90 days, which is like, by the way, all organic off of press and just really good momentum, no paid acquisition. It was like, it was incredible. Wow. So, you know, hard to recreate that. And we've, 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 we've attempted to grab pieces of what worked there and what didn't, but candidly, that was much more of a PR and marketing success than an actual business OpEx, like, like outcome for us where it would actually look good from the economics perspective. Right. So you were successful in creating buzz, buzz. and viral growth and people thought, thought this was exciting. Um, yeah. What happened next? Were you, were, you, were, you, were you ever successful in creating like a product that actually, you know, like solved the problem and people wanted to use and was, and you had good metrics or, or was it, was it all just kind of the, the top line buzzy stuff? Yeah. So, so, so no, no, no. So, so when we raised that, that, um, that, that free speed round, um, that 600 grand, we were never able to, to get the level of buzz that we actually had out of the original launch, but we were definitely able to not only acquire pizzerias, sell a lot of pizza and actually like run an, an ordering platform, right? Like, like we actually solved the harder problem later um, in the sense of like we acquired 5,000 pizzerias manually by cold calling them around America. We signed wow. up a bunch of chains. We went to, we went on a 60 school college tour where we basically acquired, you know, roughly, you know, I'd say, you know, close to six figures of, 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 of customers and selling pizza online. And those folks did repeat orders and we saw success there. The right. challenge for us was that like the use case of the use case of, of ordering a, a large pizza for yourself was just never a normal thing, right? It was never organic to say, I want a large pizza and a, and a drink for myself. And our money was in the actual full pie sales. Pizzerias just didn't want to deliver slices. And there was always complications with menu. And the whole thing for us was how do we give the Domino's pizza builder experience? For, for the masses or for, for and by the way, I say masses, I mean on the B2B side, the, the mom and pop pizzerias and then on the B2C side where like customers who want to order like from their favorite local shop and get that Domino's like app experience. Anyway, we could never really, we were never really going to be able to, to, to promise that. So the next natural step was kind of one or two things. One was build full menus. So, so like give people the full menu restaurant experience, but then they were just basically grab up. And the other option was um, going into other food categories. So like pushing for burgers and tacos and all these others. And as we realized, like we were kind of going down a path that was very different than what we originally wanted, which was we just wanted to be an easy button for everything. Um, and I think what we found was that there was just so much more demand from from the investor side to go into much more of like a you know how do you become like deep into food categories? We sort of said we didn't really want to do that. Um, we want to be pushed for everything. Uber, Postmates, all others would get deeper into food delivery. And we're like, oh, we're not going to be masters of that. We're never going to be the actual delivery person. So we kind of looked like an affiliate platform. Then we kind of said, we don't really want to be an affiliate platform. Um, and so then we started taking on, you know, we're looking at the cash in the bank. We're like, is a seed round possible? What do we do? We then started to look closer at the opportunity to actually get, you know, bought up by another company who was interested in exploring a delivery-like product. All of a sudden, what ended up happening was our investors started introducing us to Pukes, so like 7-Eleven. We started talking to Postmates. We started talking to Grubhub themselves. We started talking to all these major companies. Um, but the one that came out of the woodwork that was the most interesting was a company called Ease, um, which is a cannabis delivery company out of San Francisco. Uh, Ease had just raised a large round of capital. They were looking to really get into more of a mobile ordering play. They wanted to speak to the younger generation, which Push Repeats had done a really good job doing. And we had this massive database of, of really sort of 21 to 28-year-olds across America who were obsessed with the idea of push for pizza, what it was, and were candidly even waiting for their markets to open up, that really lined up nicely with where Ease's markets were, particularly Seattle, 
um, not Washington at that point, but you know, the, the, the future of Washington is a legalized cannabis, uh, recreational cannabis state, California, obviously Massachusetts, a lot of these places that have been on the radar for a while, even New York to some degree. And so we got courted a lot of interest from them. We took a lot of meetings. We ran a process with a few other folks um, and worked out a nice deal to be acquired by, by ease, um, to join their company, to work on sort of a mobile ordering platform, much like push for pizza, but for their, their customers. Um, and it was really attractive. It gave us a really good opportunity out. Um, it, it took care of investors in a way where um, the success would basically, if, if we were successful with what we built there, the trigger would work out well for them. Um, and we had the opportunity to jump. And so we did that. And that was in 2017. And so while we'd grown our, our the Push for Pizza platform, um, we realized that there was a greater opportunity working with these. And so we decided to go there. Yeah. Um, pretty cool. And I, I mean, it's fascinating hearing like the inner workings of, I mean, I'm sure it was different at the moment of when you're going through this, but looking back on, uh, on kind of the strategic rationale of going, you know, full menu or, or keeping it simple for one push ordering and yeah, getting, uh, as you said, acquired by, uh, by ease for one click ordering for their product push for, they call it push for Kush, right? Yes, it was called push for Kush. And, and so just to, just a note on that, I think that's a good thing to, to leave listeners with really quick on that. It's like, it's don't like, like we were just really honest with ourselves at a point where we said, we have the opportunity to go raise a seed round and try and blow out this like pizza ordering platform and become like a grub hubby kind of thing for Italian restaurants or do this for another food category. Or we have an opportunity to join a rocket ship where we can do well, our investors can do well if we do well. And, and we were like actually excited about getting the experience from like a, a really fast growing co like, like ease is and was. Yeah. And so I think that for listeners here, it's like, you know, we didn't walk away from Bush Pizza thinking, oh man, we had to sell this thing because that was the only people who wanted to buy it. We had very much the opportunity to go and raise more capital. It's just, we kind of thought we made a better decision by going where we felt better with our gut, but not leading investors down a line where we thought we were going to continue building a business that like might one day work out. In fact, we actually went to one where we saw immediate success and opportunity and believed in the ultimate vision and mission of ease. And so I actually just would say like, you know, it's, you know, never feel like a sucker for having to sell or feeling like you need to sell because that's just the better option that you have at the time. Um, really, is it the more strategic or the smarter one? So that, I think that's an important thing to leave because I didn't know how to think of that at the time when I was making that decision. And, and I think it's important for people to know that. But it's, it's yeah. okay to, to exit even even if it's an acquire or spin out because it might actually be a better outcome for you, which I feel like it was for us in our case. So you felt like it at the time. And do Max, do you still feel like that was the right that was the right play? Yeah. And I think I actually might, um, I think my co-founder Cyrus might have different opinions on that. But I think from my perspective, we got the opportunity to gain a ton of knowledge and leadership experience at a, at a large company that was growing. Um, we got to take our technology and apply it in a way that, you know, at the time felt like it would be effective and supportive and helpful on both sides. Um, and we didn't have to sort of like continue to build something that like we weren't really sure what the next phase of, like we would have been raising that next round out of just the fact that we had to rather than that we actually felt like there was a next step. And the other option would have been just to say, hey, quit all this and go start something new. We actually did want to take care of our investors. We wanted the dream to live on. And so we really wanted to go over to Ease to basically to, to live in that next chapter. Right. So, okay. So Max, what did, what did Ease do with, do with the product? Like what happened next? So the original, um, I, I'm not allowed to sort of speak about all of it because a lot of it's kind of confidential and some of that stuff never came out uh, or never ended up in the world. But sure, we went there to work on a few different things. One was, uh, one of the main things of the company was to work on a, basically the same way it was easy to order pizza. Um, it would be same, the same way easy to order uh, recreationally legal cannabis um, with your Ease account. 
And we would partner with a few brands on the ease menu to offer special deals and do drops and promos. Um, and it was a great way to use the promotional engine for them. It was a great way for us to support uh, the, the basically the ease menu and kind of just create new affiliate channels for what eventually might end up becoming, if you think about it, opportunities to order through any platform. Um, you know, if you think about the way that Amazon has done this really well with affiliates and working through different channels to be able to allow people to do purchasing and drop shipping, the sort of same dream was there with Push for Kush where we could create these custom menus on top of the, the ease platform. Um, what ended up happening was, uh, candidly, directionally, you know, if you've, if you've ever been a part of a company that gets acquired or you've ever joined a sort of a large ground company, particularly in a really he heavily regulated environment, there are just a lot of things that come up along the way that get that shuffle priorities. Yeah. Um, and you learn that when you come in, the environment is very different than where you are maybe even six months or a year later. And if you look at the cannabis regulations and the way that things have changed sort of from at the, pu the public level, what's gone on in California is that the industry has just totally been flipped outside of its head. Um, and everybody's been affected by it, good and bad. Um, but I think that at the time, you know, in a pre-corona world, cannabis was like, you know, a, a really a competition between dispensaries and logistics companies delivering on behalf of those dispensaries. And where that all stood was really, really confusing. And so the priorities of making interesting, fun menus just really didn't surmount to like the actual logistics of really playing a strong place in the market where he was and continuing to grow that business. And so the short of it is basically like priorities changed. Um, yeah. And we were okay with that. And so we ended up actually working on a lot of marketing campaigns. We ended up working on a lot of other really internal initiatives that really came in the same vein of what we wanted to work on initially. But the core push for Kush product, unfortunately, was never able to see the light of day. Right. Uh, it may end up seeing light of day in the future. Um, but during the time that we were there, we were, we were unfortunately not able to launch it. Okay. But I mean, it is probably, I mean, I mean, I'm imagining very impactful for you. You know, you've never like worked for anyone before you've had all these, all, all your, uh, creative businesses that, that, that you've, that you've incubated. And now you're yep. working for what you said, like a, you know, big time funded startup. And so I'm sure you took some learnings from there and was it the next yeah, piece was, of it was, Oh, I, I like working for a big startup or no, no, no. Like I'm an entrepreneur and I'm going to go build something all over again. Yeah. So I think the takeaway was like, we watched a company go from like 50 to 150 people in like seven months. And we watched a company basically just grow. I mean, they just, they just, it's just I, I can't talk about the numbers, but like, you know, growth was real. Like we watched hyper growth happen in real life. And it was really cool to be on the inside of that and know what that actually looks like. Cause everything we've been doing that before that was like small fry. Like we were like yeah. peanuts compared to the growth that we were seeing internally. Um, and I think what the takeaway was, was just like, wow, I want to build something that I own that can grow like this. I want to go do this. Um, and investors had kind of been asking us, Hey, what are you going to do next? What's, what are you going to work on? You know, what's going on? And we'd kind of been saying, Hey, we, we've got some ideas. And, you know, I think we also just wanted to be kind of like masters of our own destiny, if that makes sense. We like me and Cyrus both really, were like, Hey, we're really fortunate. We were able to join this company. We we're able to learn a ton, but like, we want to go do this on our own again. We really want to strong arm this. We want to be our own, our own bosses again. And, um, even Aqua hired within a company where we had our own autonomous control kind of unit, we still didn't feel like our own bosses. And I don't think we ever would have. And so we, um, we decided to go, uh, go start a new company about a year later. So we left after a year. Um, we, uh, we, we decided to go start a, a company that would incorporate all of these skills that I've described up to this point, a bit of e-com from the early, early days, a bit of content production like we do with Push for Pizza and something that had the ability to scale widely and wasn't forced to be sort of a localized business like Push for Pizza was. Um, but that had the potential to grow much like an ease or a similar hyper, hyper growth company. And so we came up with this idea called down to shop. And effectively the idea was rebuilding QVC for the next generation. Um, and the point was like, how do you take QVC, which does $10 billion a year for 44 year old, 44 to plus, 44 to like 60 in America, you know, particularly female, but also lots of male viewership and half of which happens on mobile. Um, how could you really recreate that for the younger generation? 
transaction because Amazon's sort of a bottom of the funnel experience where you, when you know what you want, you get there and at the top of the funnel, Instagram's sort of a mess. How could you become that full on curation and actual transaction, um, full commerce stack and, and, and really carry people through that much like what the mall kind of used to do, um, particularly in pre of world. <laughs> um, right. How could you, how could you kind of create that serendipity of shopping? Um, and so we had a really big bet on being QVC for the next generation. And, and our whole thesis was not using UGC, producing our own content, opening up our own studio, uh, sourcing our own D2C products with partners, and really giving D2C brands the ability to market outside of just a traditional Google or Facebook stack, um, you know, being forced to use these similar tools and paying rent to these people. Well, we want to collect some of that rent. We can do it a lot more creatively. And so we raised a bunch of money from some, some from pretty prominent, you know, probably some of the most prominent consumer investors, um, VCs today, who basically took this bet with us that said, hey, we're going to produce our own content. We're going to sell a bunch of product. And we're going to create this incredibly engaging sort of consumer experience. And brands are going to love us too. Um, and the way it's going to work is we're going to shoot videos for free. We're going to take 20% off of whatever we sell or 30% off of whatever we sell. Eventually, we'll get in a private label. People are going to watch and they're going to shop. It's going to be great. Um, and so that original bet sort of came with a lot of assumptions around, you know, cost of production and a lot of things that just are like things you don't really think about until you're actually doing it and you don't actually get the test. Right. We were able to go and do this sort of content commerce production, you know, uh, 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 really what I would say is like a uh, platform, uh, if you will. Uh, we grew to about a quarter million registered users uh, in about six months. And what we found was that like a majority of our, and we, oh, and we worked with over a hundred D2C brands. Uh, and so, you know, we basically get people to watch 17 to 20 minutes of advertisements a day, which is a, which is a pretty massive amount. If you think about it, these are people who are opting in to be able to do this. And a lot of the learnings were that like, one is the audience just didn't really have the disposable income to buy like wacky, weird QVC stuff. So we weren't like, we weren't offering like wish like stuff, which was like two to $3 like trinkets and items. We were actually trying to offer like pretty like premium products. Um, unfortunately, our audience just that had the time to watch didn't have also the, the external income to buy. Um, what, what they did have time for though was to earn sort of these reward points. And so we created these ulti points that you would earn for watching episodes You get points for watching those, those, those episodes and it was called cloud. And that cloud actually allowed allowed you to be able to go into our store and buy things in dollars and or in clout. And that really moved the needle for our acquisition. People love earning clout. There's a loyalty and a rewards aspect to that that was just massively, uh, was just really, really popular. And so what we kind of found was like, could we lean into clout? Could we look more like an advertising company as opposed to a commerce company and get to commerce later? Uh, along the way, we launched a bunch of initiatives like the clout card, which was a subscription you could pay to earn even more clout when you watch. Think of like a game pass when you go to an arcade. Uh, we, we did a bunch of initiatives to sort of test where people would be willing to spend their dollar. And it turned out that people really just wanted more ways to earn rewards than they were willing to pay for them. And so we looked at advertising as a business and rewards as sort of a service as a business for, for customers. And candidly, what we kept finding was that advertising was much more like an agency than a venture-backed business. And rewards really had potential. Rewards was what kind of sunk through the entire time. We said, well, how can we double down our rewards? And through that whole down-to-shop experience, it brought us to this pivot, which we're now working on and, and soon to debut to the world, um, that is called Extra. Um, and, and it's all under sort of the same cap table, same investors. We've actually raised even more capital from those folks. We've had continued support from the cap table. Um, to basically build what is now effectively a rewards-based and a credit-building-based debit product. Um, and so I know I kind of went further than the question you asked, but the point is that we sort of took this initial idea uh, of just consuming content in, in exchange for rewards and hopefully being a commerce play to really doubling down on rewards and seeing what works and then building an entire business behind that in a way where we feel like it's been totally missing from the market today. Well, I, uh, Max, <laughs> you're right. It's impressive to hear. I can't wait to hear about 
the product that you're more about the product that you're building. Um, yeah. but just like the learnings from, from down to shop are amazing. And I'm also struck by, uh, how much different your fundraising process sounds like, um, from when you tried to raise money for push for pizza, uh, and you like had to build a product and get customers and everything. And this one, it sounds like, okay, I have an idea. And now because I've, uh, you know, sold, sold my last company to, to ease. It's like, I've got a lot, a lot more people interested in backing us. Yeah. And I think an important thing to say is like, with everybody we've worked with along the way, with every investor, we've always kind of gone in with a relationship where the investor understands that we're taking a really bold risk. We're trying something really new that nobody has really done. And it's going to be really hard, right? This is not as simple as put product in front of audience, audience buys, CAC to LTV is X and Y. It's You're actually changing behavior. The thought of what we were doing with Down to Shop is changing my perspective of how I think about shopping. And shopping becomes fun again, right? Today, shopping is a very boring binary experience. I want to click add to cart, buy, check out. The only time I get really fun shopping is actually, again, like serendipitous is the word we use a lot internally, is when I'm going into the store, I'm feeling the fabric of the clothes, I'm looking at the prices, my best friend is wearing it. There's this like connective moment. And we were really trying to create that for this, you know, 18 to 24 year old audience. Um, and so I think that the, 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 a lot of the learnings were just simply that like, you know, finding products within the expendable income bracket, really focusing on merchandising. I think companies like Super Great have done an incredible job at picking a category and being the best at it. So instead of trying to be like everything to everyone, which is what we tried to do, Super Great has done an incredible job of taking a lot of what we we also believe or believe still and focusing it on the beauty category. And so I actually think that like, was what, what I would have done differently is focused on a category, a niche specifically, started really, really much smaller, did more UGC because UGC is effectively cheaper and what people actually want to watch. Producing your own content is expensive. And like also just candidly, like the clicks and the CPCs are much better and you're seeing much more attraction to, to UGC, user-generated content for those who don't know what that is. If you look at every major company, Maybelline, every major major brand, whoever on YouTube, they're all doing UGC now. Why? Because people like to see stuff that looks like it's on their story. Um, and I think we tried to run before we walked. And I think we tried to get, we, since we raised a lot of capital, we felt this pressure to... Uh, grow really fast and do whatever it took to do that, that growth at all cost mentality. And so we kind of sacrificed what should have been spending time on what we, what we now call really quality revenue. Um, and so I guess what I would say is like a focus on quality revenue now more than ever, obviously, because the fundraising environment and sort of the, the market has changed, but moreover, like just building a good business and like realizing from day one, like if commerce isn't going to work, how the hell is this all going to work? Because you can't just give away a bunch of points, expect that to be paid off by advertisers later and like hope that's all going to come together. And I'm kind of speaking in broad strokes right now, but I hope that's sort of informative in terms of what we learned and what was important out of that experience. Yeah, super cool. Okay. So getting into the into the pivot of the of the product and focusing on, you know, what's working with this rewards piece. Uh how do you get to this debit card and, and, and what is, what is this debit card? Yeah. You know, I think, you know, I, I, it's so, so first and foremost, we looked at our data and we said, okay, well, 80% of our customers, um, on, on down shop, our registered users use a debit card as a primary payment method. Um, they use that because, and, and we ran a lot of surveys to learn why we actually have conducted, I think what is now the largest sort of survey of like, of, of sort of Gen Z and millennial, uh, financial, what we call financial novices or folks who just have, you know, query or question about how money works. And we asked everything from like, do you know what a savings account is? Do you understand how interest works? What are your thoughts on credit cards? And we actually conducted this with about 25 to 30,000 of our users very in-depthly. And then have actually brought those folks down the funnel now to where we are today. But basically the learning is, you know, 80% of those folks use debit products. Um, a lot of folks are, the majority of those folks are scared of credit or credit like products or don't think that they could even qualify for one. Um, they love loyalty and rewards. And today there are very few places to get loyalty and rewards out of debit. 
The only way to really do that is through a very few partners who actually have allowed a cashback or rewards-based program um, and or you are connected to a DOSH or a DROP or one of these that looks at your statement and gives you points or cash back where you shop. What we said is why don't we take what works in credit cards, which is rewards and credit building, and try and build that into a debit-like product. And so we took a really hard look at the offerings of the markets today. We saw the success of our cloud card product, which we ran sort of like, you know, three or four months before, which drove engagement, you know, 25 to 30 X on average per customer and buying and shopping and doing capacity because they were paying to be a part of this community now and they were earning more points. And how could we encapsulate that in a sole product that didn't matter where somebody shopped, but we gave them that value everywhere they went. And that took us down a ton of market research to basically get to the point where folks really want, really run happy with their banks, really wanted a means to spend to be able to earn points anywhere they shop and didn't like the current offerings of basically card linked offerings, which are things like Applebee's and like being able to go to Best Buy and get 5% cash back. We said, well, what if we give them the credit card experience? Have been working on doing that, are very close to doing that now and are weeks away from launching our alpha, which is now called Extra um, for that. And a lot of the early customers are going to be some of the super fans from down to shop and a lot of just folks who have been really plagued by not wanting a credit card and really just like using a debit card. Yeah, I mean, I totally understand it, Jen. This next generation is different. They grew up during the financial recession. They don't yep. trust. They don't trust big banks, and they don't want, uh, you know, non-transparent. Like you sign a credit card agreement, it's like you, one side knows everything, and, and you signing it, you don't know anything and understand anything. So it's it's a uh, it's a completely different mindset that just the banks haven't been equipped for. So you say, okay, we'll build something banks don't know how to do a delightful product. Um, and it doesn't have to like be called a credit card or a debit card or a savings account or a checking account. It's like, we can just build a product that allows people to spend, doesn't cost them anything and then gives them rewards on like, you know, in ways that, that they want. Right. Right. And I think for us, like a, a really big piece is, is credit building. Um, and it's something we didn't really see early on, but we spent a lot of time on is that People just feel like they either can't qualify, don't want a credit card, and a bank has been pushing them into a credit card their entire sort of relationship with the bank. Can we give them the ability to build financial literacy, learn about money, understand what their credit score is, actually build their credit score, earn points, and get the credit card experience within debit, which is great for internationals. It's great for people who have been burned by the system or great for people who are just like only spending the money that they have. And what you're seeing now in the chimes of the world and the revolutes and N26s is it's very much about understanding where your money is and where it's going. And we totally subscribe to that. However, we just believe that there's a ton of people who are on the legacy banking rail who don't need a new bank account. They just need a better version of their existing bank that we actually hope to, to, to be a better version of for them. We, we don't want to make you leave your Chase or your, or your Bank of America. We actually want to be the place where you use a, on top of that to be able to get your rewards, get your credit building here. Because maybe you have, a, you know, you're investing with your Wells Fargo. You've got a savings account there. We're not going to try and compete with those interest rates. We're much more interested in competing as your spending tool. Right. So wait, I'm, I'm, I'm missing something. I thought it was a debit card, but now you're talking about, uh, it's all, it's also a bank. You're going to keep, you're going to keep money here. And, and, and well, I guess it's, yeah. it's a debit card. You have to attach it to a, to a bank, right? Yeah. So you have to have, it has to be attached to a source of funds. Um, so we're not a bank. We, we partner with a bank. Like a majority of these folks do wraparounds with banks. Um, but we uh, are, are, we're not trying to message. We're not having you prove your direct deposit here. Our goal is not to move you to, to move where this is where you, you know this is where you need to store all your money now. We're much more interested in being the place where you spend your money, and this is what sort of the Square Cashes and the Venmos have done really well. Except the difference is we're really trying to build in much more of a credit card like experience where you feels like they're getting rewards, they're building a credit, they're getting a lot more value than they're getting out of their Square Cash card or their Venmo card today, which is particularly used for P2P payments. Yeah, no, I I totally get it. I think I don't know if you're familiar with with how what Uber does does for their drivers about how they yeah yeah so totally. totally I mean same sort of thing. And I mean like 
that's the future of, of, of banking. The same thing you're talking about. Like these are, these are the future pieces. So you're so like you capture the spend and then over time you start to layer in the other, uh, banking business models that they have of, you know, making money in, in, you know, in other products, right? Like that's, yeah. that, that's kind of how you guys see it. And I think that like the, the, the one thing that we notice is that like, there's not a, um, there's like a customer, like, I think that there's a gray zone of customer, which is, I'm not a chime user. Actually, I'm like happy with my existing bank account. I don't need to, I, I don't need to get kind of start from scratch. Like chime really does for a lot of the users, uh, which is solved a massive problem, but I just don't think it's the one we're, we're trying to solve, right. but I'm not really quite ready to move to like a SoFi like engagement or like a more premium banking experience, like a Charles Schwab or one of these where I am getting a lot more of this value. We're trying to give you that kind of gray zone value within debit where you kind of get the Amex like level of service or experience, but you get to be on like a debit, like a debit, a debit product, which has a lot less strings attached um, for a lot of customers today who just don't really want those kind of products. Super cool. Um, and I imagine this has been, you know, the reason that a lot of these problems exist is because, well, a one, one of the reasons is fintech is just so regulated and arduous and old and slow moving. So as you mm -hmm. said, you've like, you've gotten a partnership with some like existing banks and you use their licenses and you build your software on top of it. So that's probably taking a long time. And so like, when are we going to, you know, when, when is this product, you know, coming to market? Yeah. So for, for those who have the timestamp of this conversation, uh, let's just say we're in May. Uh, we want to be, we're going to be, you know, w w something by the end of the summer will be more readily available to a larger group, which I'm excited about. Cool. And um, has COVID affected this business? So we were pretty, we, we were very fortunate. We actually closed our round right before COVID started. Um, so our oh, timing yeah, was great. was really lucky, which is awesome. Um, and then I would say, um, you know, I think we will see decrease in spend, meaning like average transaction volume. I think we'll just go down because naturally we've all, I think I, I can say for this for myself and our team, we've all just been spending less and we talk about it a lot. Like we're all, we measured like roughly all of us are spending roughly you know 20 to 30% less than we normally would be, um, which is great for us because we're like, oh, we're saving money. But like, you know, I think for the general population, uh, it, we're going to see that that trend through line. Um, so spending less. And then, um, you know, I think people's appetite for a new payment product, you know, it's got to really solve a problem for them. So I just think that the there's if we would just be the narrative has to be that this is resolving the, the, the issues that the whole credit card experience fixes, not just the rewards, not just the credit building. It's really got to feel like a value add to a user. And I think where we started is very different than where we're at now. And I think we've unlocked a lot more value that I feel much more confident about than where we started at. Had we just been like a rewards product in a in a COVID situation, because can I think rewards are the last thing I'm thinking about when I'm worried about how I'm going to pay for my rent or pay for, you know, my essentials. Right. So I, I Max, last, last question on this, and then we'll get into the, the yeah. final piece of this, but, uh, sure. um, getting, getting customers, do you use the user generated content stuff that, that, that you learned about in, in, uh, in down to shop, or do you try, yep. to, try to create another, you know, video like pizza? Like what's the, what's the plan? Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, we're kind of in the we're in the middle of a lot of that right now. I think we're very fortunate where we've got a we've got a, a very large waiting list of DTS customers who have transitioned and now want the extra card. Um, so we actually have a very strong first cohort that we plan to market to and spend time with internally. Um, so we're not looking to do any paid acquisition for the early days. We will, um, you know, continue to do user generated content as we think that that is the, the winning bet in terms of acquisition. But I think what the key here is is that the and we, we've heard this from mentors of ours in the fintech space, and this is particularly a fintech. Fintech CACs and cost of acquisition in this game is extremely expensive, classically very hard to reach. People don't love talking about financial products unless they're really problem solving. Um, and I think what we need to do is really think about, and was what we're doing today, a lot of what network effects can do within Fintechs. I mean, you've seen this work really well with Square Cash and Venmo. 
to have to use Venmo, you got to have your friend have Venmo, and there's kind of this perfect acquisition funnel. We need to think of that sort of perfect virality there with Extra, which is effectively like, hey, we want to earn rewards together. We want to build credit together. This is something that I should be incentivized to tell my friends about. And so we have a lot of really fun ideas on the referral side of things that we've learned taking a book out of from credit cards. If you think about credit cards, half of credit cards is referral bonuses and people hacking them and churning. I don't know your experience with that, but there's entire Reddit channels that do nothing with hundreds of thousands of members who talk about this. We're trying to tap into a bit of that psyche for the debit card audience, which I think we can do. <laughs> Pretty cool. Um, all right. Uh, well, Max, super, so much fun, uh, fun hearing that story and the, the evolution. Yeah, sorry of, if that uh, was kind of long. I, no, I kind of no, 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 no. Amazing. <laughs> I, I'm like, I'm fascinated by it all. Um, so I'll get you out of here on uh, on this. You know, you mentioned this, you know, study of uh, of Gen Z financial habits, and um, you know, that's the exact audience of uh, people listening to this podcast. And I always talk about, yep. you know. Uh, like, don't just, you know, ask someone for a job, like figure out a way that you can like, you know, provide value to them and, and, you know, make yourself uh, indispensable. Is there anything that listeners of this podcast could do that would be helpful to you? Can they, is there a wait list that they can sign up for? Is there yeah. a survey, you know, any, anything like that? Yeah. So I would say like, um, first and foremost, uh, be sure to go on our website, extra.app and sign up for the wait list. Uh, I, I know nobody ever wants to actually sign up for a wait list, but genuinely would love to have you sign up there. We are letting some people on early who fit a lot of the profile of what we're looking at in the first co uh, cohort. There's some questions on there like, what kind of card do you use? Um, where do you think your spend typically goes? That will help us kind of like analyze. And I'd love any feedback there. It contributes to that pool. Um, if, you, as a, if you're thinking about becoming a founder or starting a company or just want advice on how any of this works, feel free to email me, Max, uh, Max M-A-X, at extra.app. I'm always happy to talk to founders and, and be, give advice and be supportive where I can be. Um, I've done a lot of that in the past. I continue to do that and support founders um, on all fronts. We've, crisis mode to everything is working awesome. So if I can be helpful there, I, I love to be and pay it forward for, for those who, you know, um, who helped me when I was in that same position too. Well, so nice, Max. And, uh, you know, again, this was just really fun speaking with you and, uh, yeah, thank you for having me, Alex. This is awesome. Yeah, dude. Thanks so much. Take care. Thanks for listening today. If you like moving up, the best way you can support us is by telling your friends and leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks.